Hey, Pastor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to go back to the, the original point of departure there to clear this up in my own mind. We talked, you talked about uh, justification as totally monergistic. Mm-hmm. We have nothing to do with that. And then we talked about sanctification as being a co-operation uh, per the Book of Concord. Sure. Um, so is that a case of yes and? Because is sanctification still monergistic? I mean, over there is a way in which it's monergistic and a way in which it isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yeah. And so you can see that articulated in Article 2, and that might be where I direct you for that, that conversation. Yeah. But again, it is he who um, is at work within you both to will and to do. And then Jesus also says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we articulate this, and this is one of the cr- criticisms brought up in uh, Formula of Concord Article 2, is if we articulate the synergism, the cooperation, as if it were two oxen pulling the cart, one's the Holy Spirit and one's you, and it takes both of you equal effort in order to pull the cart, that is a wrong articulation. Okay, So we can describe sanctification as monergistic because it is he who is at work within us both to will and to do. So who gets the credit even for the good works? God. But now we find this secondary teaching in Scripture that we do, in fact, participate actively in those good works. They are, in some sense, ours, and God rewards them. This leads Augustine to say he rewards his own works within us. (laughs) But think of the language that Jesus used. And don't be afraid of the language. Cling to Jesus' words. He's right. He'll make you smarter. He'll make you a better theologian. All right? Don't punt to some easy category that's easier to understand and that you're more comfortable with. You're just stunting your own growth. But what does Jesus say? Whosoever giveth a cup of cold water unto the least of these or unto a little child will by no means lose his reward. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do. Hey, it's the Holy Spirit doing it and in through you anyway. So just kind of go along with it. And he gets all the credit. And, you know, so just sort of like, no, Jesus just flat out says, if you do this, you will be rewarded. As you do this, you will be. It's you doing the doing. So there are times in which our Lord articulates the one side of the coin, um, really emphasizing our active participation. Again, he doesn't say here in verse 24, the Holy Spirit will pay attention through you so that my word is profitable. It's just not what he says. He's on the side of the coin that is pay attention, cooperate. Later on, you go, yeah, but, but isn't this good work? Like, isn't that a gift of God? Absolutely. He's at work within you both to will and to do. Okay, so it's both sides of the coin. Make sense? Okay. So, um, and, and Brad, hopefully this will, you know, a little offer you a little more data while I, while I still finish your question, John. Okay, so um, yes, there is a proper way to understand the role of works, even within the judgment of justification, as God is responsible for making the sheep, the sheep do good works. That good works is evident of the work of God and evidence of justification. Okay. 
he it is he who makes five of the virgins wise and thus the virgins bring oil and enter into the marital feast it is he who makes good trees and the good trees bear fruit such that he could judge and say there's a tree with good fruit enter there's a tree with bad fruit enter it is he who sows the seed in the good soil such that the fruit such that the good soil bears abundant fruit it is he who sows uh, his seed creating fruitful plants that will then be harvested and brought into his barn, okay? But in every case, you can point to works as part of that, as the fruitfulness flowing forth from the justification. And the scriptures do everywhere. And by the way, so does the Athanasian Creed. Now, what happens if in for decades we have not been taught this stuff, and we've been taught that thinking this way is not Lutheran? then you actually reach this stage where you're twisting the words of Jesus to say something they don't, they don't say. You're presuming to change his active language into passive language. And when you get to the Athanasian Creed, you outright say, this is not a Lutheran Creed. Which, by the way, is where we are in many respects in Lutheran land. And it's appalling. If we're embarrassed by the Athanasian Creed, if we're embarrassed by the plain words of Jesus, we're embarrassed by the teaching, then guess what? Somewhere along the line, our theology is getting real messed up. So the project is to abandon it, cling to the word of Jesus, let his words be his words, let the tenses be the tenses, and guess what? Lo and behold, it all works out. And lo and behold, you find yourself returning to Lutheranism and knowing it for the first time (laughs) than actually believing what it is that our confessors confess in the Book of Concord. So so then, then the second category is, apart from justification, is there then a component of the justification based on one bearing more fruit than another? Absolutely. Look, it's right here. It's everywhere, but it's right here in verse in verse uh, 20 of chapter 4. But those that were sown on the good soil, these are the Christians, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. These are all Christians. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. See the difference? They're all good soil, but some bears 30, 60, and 100. There's a difference between Christians. Okay? That's rewarded. And that's plainly evident that there are rewards for good works. It's, this is one of the greatest encouragements that you see wherever, almost wherever rewards are spoken of, it's in the context of encouragement. Because why? A monergistic justification can give one the sense that it doesn't matter what I do. And it doesn't matter if I try hard or don't try hard, because either way, I'm saved. Now, when taken to an extreme, this actually becomes toxic and toxic to the point where you can lose your faith. James writes into one such condition where the Christians there are actually not clothing and feeding. I mean, imagine coming to the congregation and there's congregants who are in such rags that they're exposing themselves and they're starving and you come strolling in right past them and the pastor greets you by name brings you to the front, and maybe he takes one of those poorly dressed bums and says, you need to move to the back because Rhodey has arrived. (laughs) And now James comes and says, that's really messed up. 
It's really messed up on the part of you pastors who are doing this, preferring the rich to the poor. That's messed up. But what's also messed up is you Christians who are who have an abundance and you won't clothe or feed your brothers. And guess what their response is? You can tell by shadow reading. Their response is, we don't have to because we're justified by faith. And of course, then James goes on. This is the proper way to understand James. It's an occasional epistle where he's writing to a specific occasion. That's where he says, even the demons have that kind of faith. If you think that faith alone, as you've articulated it, faith without clothing or feeding your brother is true faith, you've got another thing coming. You're not justified by such faith apart from works. Such faith is, in fact, no faith whatsoever. Okay, so now we can see where he's going with that. All right. So uh, that's where it goes all the way into toxicity. But now pulling back. The Lord encourages us and rewards us so that, yeah, we're saved without doing a thing. But why should I do anything then? Because your reward will be so super abundant. God is no longer keeping track of your sins. That record of debt has been put away forever. But God is absolutely keeping track of your good works. So be encouraged. Every last one of them has eternal meaning. Even something that you did that you paid no attention to, like giving a cup of cold water to, some, to a little child in my name. Okay, Doesn't mean that giving a cup of cold water to a kid and saying in the name of Jesus is some magical formula or some special unique thing. It means that God, everything you do has such profound and eternal meaning. And God cares so deeply about the fruitfulness that even the most minuscule thing that you didn't even realize you were doing, God is up there writing it down and preparing your reward. So then how much more should you be encouraged to do the right thing when it's going to cost you? All the more, all the more abundant, you know, and that's where you leverage the shortness of this life and the approval of the father that he's not looking at your sins, but he's joyfully looking down upon you and he's writing down every good thing you do. And it's just, you can almost do this zero sum thing of like, what good can I do right now? You know, it's not like, oh, I've done so much more evil than good or oh, I've not done as much good as the next guy, or oh, all the opportunities I've botched. I mean, all of these are poisonous, toxic ways of thinking. Everything that you do, the Lord loves. Doesn't matter anything else. Doesn't matter what your record is. Zero sum. Just do something fruitful, and you will be rewarded. Okay, so that's sanctification. And then in sanctification, there's a difference. So just as there are degrees of sin, one sin worse than another and deserving of a worse punishment than another, there are also degrees of glory, of good works, that one good work is better than another. I mean, I can tell you this, for whatever good works I've got, I am not St. Paul and neither are you. We haven't literally given up our entire lives and traveled everywhere and been beaten within an inch of our lives and kept on going for crying out loud. If something gets me the slightest bit down, I just about wilt. You know, it's just about a lost day. And St. Paul gets beaten and he's like, all right, back in the saddle. You know, I mean, sorry, that guy deserves reward that I don't deserve. And when he receives that, I will say, wonderful. And in the meantime, I'm going to try to be inspired to not be such a worm and to man up and be a little bit more like St. Paul. Okay. And that's how the kingdom works. So if, if I, an egotistical sinner, can even be okay with that right now, how much more will I be okay with that when, when I'm in the kingdom of heaven and don't have an ego and don't have competition, and I'm just loving the fact that the Lord is calling for um, 
the widow who nobody else noticed she was doing a good work because she just tossed in two little copper mites. And the Lord says, here's the greatest good work of all. Are you not just going to glory at that and just be so thankful to God and to this woman and to the whole thing? It's a gigantic celebration. That's the Bible's theology of the reward of good works. It's all leverage to make us realize that any good work is worth it. Isn't that, isn't that part of the, the thing with the purpose-driven life, though, that you are working for not your salvation, but working for the rewards in heaven? Yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. It's almost as if every biblical teaching has a million different ways to be misunderstood. All right. What is what is Mr. How does Mr. Warren uh, misunderstand this biblical teaching? He puts it in self-serving terms. So it's not doing good works simply because it pleases my father doing good works because I can be guaranteed that it's meaningful and will echo into eternity. The way that Rick Warren frames it is I am doing good works in order to earn my way up the hierarchy of heaven. So he articulates it as just, I don't want to be a doorkeeper in heaven. I want to be a big boss in heaven. I want to be ruling over everything, you know, right next to God. So I'm going to work hard right now so that I get that. Do you think such works are pleasing to God in the least? No. A complete misunderstanding of the kingdom, a complete debauching of this otherwise pure, joyful, selfless, grace-filled theology, a complete botching of that when you mechanize it all to simply serve my ego. Yeah. So every biblical teaching can be twisted into something perverse. And that's all Rick Warren has done in this instance. Our task then is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, okay, well, since Rick Warren does that, I guess, you know, I guess there's no point in doing good works. No, we do good works. Just don't do it with a sense of like, I'm going to be better than everybody else. <laughs> guess what? Your good work just became a sin. I think it's more that he has Satan working with him, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, I do think that Rick Warren has, uh, an, an, a, I mean, he's got an amazing ability to communicate. But a lot of what he does is he, he turns Christianity into consumerism. We have members in this congregation where Rick Warren went to their house, sat in their living room and said, what do you want out of a church? And that's what he did. And then he just made the church of what people want. I, I'm missing a chapter and a verse for how that's how churches are created. Okay. Uh, so he's got a lot of success by doing a lot of satanic things, including much of his church's growth. And this will probably be one of the ultimate reveals is that many of these so-called successful churches who are making converts of everybody are in fact not making converts of everybody. They've stolen them away from other congregations. And very frequently, these things are viewed as a spiritual meat grinder. Even insiders will tell you that they cannot retain Christians. And those Christians who leave a church like Saddleback or a big box church after, on average, last I checked, four to five years, don't go back to church they're done. That was it. They had the best preacher, the best church, fat-free lattes, and it didn't work. I'm out. So the final 
balancing of the scales isn't my business. That's God's business. And if Rick Warren is better than all of us, well, that's God's judgment and God be praised. I don't care. Um, But I doubt it. And as for me and my ministry, I'm going to keep building a la Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, with those unimpressive little things like gold and silver and precious stones, which you can't build anything fast or anything big or anything grandiose with that in a human lifetime. But guess what? What you do build is fireproof and precious. Whereas there are many ministers and ministries out there who are great big ministries, huge edifices, but they're not fireproof. They're built with wood, hay, and stubble, and the testing of the Lord will burn them down and consume them in an instant, and they won't last. So what was better? I mean, again, I'm, I'm asking you hypothetically. I ask my, myself this question all the time as a pastor, building upon that one foundation, which is Christ Jesus. Would I rather something little that's going to last or something big that's not? And that all of a sudden makes it very clear to me. Um, what I want to do and what I want to be about. And by the way, that will tie in nicely with where we're going with our parables because Jesus articulates it in just this way that the little thing, the despised thing, the mustard seed, the little pinch of leaven ends up long-term having huge effect. So it doesn't look like anything right now. It's true even when you throw a seed, right? It doesn't look like anything right now, but at harvest time, it does. And that's the secret of the kingdom and also the investment of faith, so to speak, is I'm binding myself to these little things that God has given me to do that don't look like anything, just like a sower throwing little dust into a field, Okay, but it will be something. It will be something. So that, I think, is our encouragement. Then also, I mean, through all the vocations, is the little things you do build up. And we even have human analogies for this, the butterfly effect, right? The little things you do. We are so, um, all of us, I mean, we are so myopic, even in just this way. We simply look at our generation. We are fruit hanging from the tree of someone back there who is faithful probably, truth be told, someone back there who gave their life. And that inspired somebody to become a Christian who inspired somebody to be a Christian. And so, I mean, we're all here in an endless chain of Christians. And probably our being here as fruit is because of some minuscule decision, somebody dying in some back alley somewhere going, nobody's even going to see my martyrdom. Oh, well, God sees it. That's enough. And thus we're here. So also, I mean, apply that forward. Your faithfulness now, completely hidden to us, how could we see? Maybe the result of 100,000 people retaining their faith. You never know. We don't. The, so again, this is, this is also why God doesn't call us to, to grow or give the growth or manifest. He calls us to sow and to water. And he promises us that it's he who will give the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. Or not, we commend that into his hands. He gives us to sow and water. What what crop comes from that's his business, right? So we need to have the humility. That's why 
you know, when he says to us, well done and good and faithful servant, we want to know what it is that he's called us to do. And that's where it broadens out to all vocation, right? What has he called you to do? So you may have a, you may look at your marriage or your relationship with your children or, um, you know, how you've performed over a lifetime as a worker or something like this. And you may go, well, it doesn't look like much to me. And probably we all feel like that from time to time. But that's not the point. The point isn't like be fruitful unto death in the sense of like manifest all this stuff and I will give you life and hey, make it all work and make it all look successful and bright and shiny. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So we're called to be faithful in our callings, our vocations. And that's where we want to spend our energy, not in the end product. Don't worry about the end product. Don't worry about the harvest. That's his business. Pay attention to what he gives you to pay attention to. Control what you can control. Be about the business he's given you to be about and let the rest ride. It's his business, not ours. Great, glorious comfort in that and the hope that he is going to manifest all kinds of wild things. I mean, look at the Bible. The whole Bible is a story of people doing faithful things and botching it and doing faithful things and ruining it all and doing faithful things. And that literally trickles down from generation to generation to generation, building the entire story of the scriptures. And by the way, the story of the scriptures, because it's history, doesn't end, but continues on. Simply, it's not being recorded a la the scriptures. It is being recorded by God, we are told. And that story continues. So know your role, play your part, let God do the rest, right? That's both very important, very rewarding, and completely commended into his hands and completely uh, beyond our ability to see. And that's where, I mean, there's going to be great, this will be one of the great joys is you're going to be more sanctified than you think you are. And in that secondary kind of judgment where Christ rewards the good works in and through you, you're going to be better than you think you are. If for no other reason than he's gracious. <laughs> be, if for no other reason than um, the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added unto you. That's the perfect analogy of the rewards in heaven. Right? You're going to be better than you think you are. So that's, that's part of the joy to look forward to as well. And those are, that's really at root of those scriptures that, you know, um, that uh, may be done unto you as was done in the body. Right? For a Christian, that's like good news because my sins were taken away. And so that's simply Christ who rewards well beyond what we deserve, um, pouring out his grace upon us and upon all. Yeah. Okay. So when we understand things like this, I mean, now it's all gospel. It's, it's all fruit of the gospel, and it's all wonderful, and it's all glorious. And if we can even start to glimpse this now, how much better is it going to be then when we're not poisoned by our sinful flesh and ego and pride and all the rest? Yeah. Okay, so we can think about works in the sphere of sanctification and reward in the sphere of sanctification. We can think of um, works and reward, the reward of eternal life, in the sphere of justification, as long as we articulate both correctly and both just as our Lord and his apostles do. Then we'll be much more at home in the scriptures as well. Okay, make sense? All right, sorry, that was more lecturing than I wanted to do. I apologize if it was uh, too much. So with, um, with these things in mind then, hearing and hearing to be good soil and being good soil for the purpose of bearing fruit. Again, that's the 
the big distinguishing factor between all four kinds of soil is only one produces fruit, grain, and that to differing levels. Okay, and then we want to take care how we hear or pay attention to how we hear, measuring, understanding it'll be measured back to us and even more. And then finally, the one who has more will be given. It's really what we've been articulating this entire time. And the one who has not, that is the one who rejects Christ, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, on to 26, the parable of the um, seed growing. So the kingdom, and again, when we see kingdom, it's reign of God is sometimes helpful. This is the way God and his rule works. Okay, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. Now, again, Jesus is not ignorant of agriculture. What has he just said? The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Okay. So this is a matter of speech, not a scientific statement. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, um, when it has yielded up its fruit, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. All right. Now, one thing that as we go through each parable, I'm going to do with you is I'm going to try to get, because every parable has a very simple point. We're going to try to get to what that very simple point is. And then from there, we can branch out and read it in all its riches and kind of ponder as to what the other meanings and implications might be. All right, very simply, Jesus is using the example of a farmer who casts out his seed and then he sleeps and he wakes up and he sleeps and he wakes up and he sleeps. And and as he's doing this, what's happening in the ground? It's automatically happening. Okay, the um, fun, uh, fun word in verse 28, the earth produces by itself. The Greek is the earth automate, automatic. (laughs) So the earth automatic um, produces by itself. Uh, Okay, so we have echoing in our ears that the um, seed is the word. So, of course, we can play with that idea, even if we don't need to land right on it. And we can see then that as the farmer, whether it's Jesus preaching, whether it's his disciples preaching, and that seems to be more in view, it is then the word that does the work, not the farmer. So I think that that is is probably the bare minimum point of the parable is that the word and the earth, not the farmer, does the work, produces the crop, okay? So not the preacher, but the word. And if you like the word in the soil. Okay, the secondary consideration 
is that Jesus describes this as a process. He doesn't just say the earth produces by itself and then comes the harvest, but he articulates a process. So as the seed goes forth, it sprouts and grows. The farmer doesn't know how. I mean, I can relate as a preacher. I don't understand why some things work and some things don't. Um, why the word grabs, grabs a hold and takes root in one and not the other. I don't understand these things. Um, I know not how. And then the earth produces by itself. And then here's here's where I think we can view a process. Now, we can read this in light of the previous, that it can go the blade, and then, of course, weeds can choke it out, or the sun can come and wither it. So we can read this in light of the previous parable, and it might be wise to do so. But the production of life isn't in control of the farmer. It's not in control of the preacher. And then in the same way that as the farmer sows, it's not just he goes to bed and he wakes up and there's a whole crop ready for the harvest, but there's time and process involved. And Jesus painstakingly illustrates that. So that should mean then from a preacher's standpoint, there's going to be a development amongst the disciples. From the disciples' standpoint, there's going to be a development amongst us. The word is going to automatically take root within us, and it's going to uh, manifest itself first as a blade, then as an ear, then as full grain in the ear. Those would be the three stages, culminating in the finality. The preposition changes in the Greek, and so also in the English. It changes from then, then, to when, and that's fair. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle and the harvest has come. Now, at that point, we're very interested because harvest language is the language of the end of the age. And here we're starting to see the Lord as the Lord of the harvest, the one who brings the harvest about. So we can get into that um, I see that we're over time, so we can maybe touch base on that reality later. So in in broad strokes, then, we've kind of done um, the major points of the parable. And, of course, we can dig in and do our own interpretation, and then certainly in the next one we will. Um, did you have a comment or question, Al? Okay, okay. So, um, so far, so good on that parable, at least for tonight as we wrap up? Okay, sorry to carry us a few minutes over. We'll We'll pick up there in a week. Um, and we're, we're going to play with this parable because even though I've kind of pointed out some of the main structures to it, I don't think we've exhausted it by any stretch of the imagination. So we'll play with this one and then we'll play with the next one and then we'll move on to Matthew. All right, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.